All right, uh, well, welcome back to church. Uh, for those of you who missed us last week and for those of you who are outside, a little cooler today, right, than last Sunday, being inside. <laughs> I got a thumbs up from the back. Um, so this morning, I want to start by saying this. Christians are gullible. We are a gullible bunch. Uh, if you look at Christian marketing, this is one of the ways that you can tell this is true. Uh, some of the things that they package and sell uh, to the Christian demographic is pretty ridiculous. Uh, there's also new beliefs that come along, and this isn't just my hypothesis, this is biblical. Remember our Galatians series where Paul is writing to a church and he says, he says, you foolish Galatians, why are you so quickly turning away from the true gospel to this other gospel, which is really no gospel at all? It's a false gospel. Think about Jesus. Jesus said these words. He said, the sons of this age are more shrewd. More shrewd than who? Christians. That's what he was saying. And we're called sheep in the Bible. Do you know how gullible sheep are? They're very gullible, right? They tend to, to follow. Now, um, I know one of the ways to really win over your crowd is to begin to attack them right out of the gate. And some of you right now are feeling attacked. Like, wait a minute. Uh, I'm a Christian and you're calling me gullible. I'm just, I'm just reporting what the scriptures report to us. But here's what I want to say. Christians are gullible, but they don't have a corner on the market. We're not the only ones who are gullible. Think about this. Uh, the next time you come across someone that you uh, maybe just know, you're friends with, you have an, a rapport enough with them, some of you are able to build rapport with people very, very quickly, and it would not be weird at all to get into this conversation. I was going to try this actually yesterday. I was planning on being on a bike for a few hours with some friends, and a person said, hey, I'm bringing a real, you know, th- this, this person is coming. He didn't tell me who it was. So I was already praying. I was like, God, give me an opportunity to sidle up to this guy while we're riding and build enough rapport with them uh, that I could just ask some questions, uh, of, uh, you know, about their worldview and stuff. And it turns out the person that came was Marie Perez, and I already knew her. So she told me, she said, maybe this is a way of God telling you, take the morning off. And so I did. I had an enjoyable time chatting with, with, uh, with my Christian brothers and sisters. But ask a person um, this question. Would you please define your worldview? There we go. Would you please define your worldview? And a lot of people have trouble really laying out the, the things that they believe. And then if, if they can't define what they, what they believe, um, at least ask them to, to label it. And most worldviews could, could tend to fall into these kinds of categories. I would refer to my worldview as, as Christian, but I might even specify that in America because Christian is such a watered down term. I might say, um, I hope that I have a biblical worldview. Someone else might say, well, um, I believe this, 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 and this. And, and, you know, in labeling it, I would say, that sounds awfully much like, like, like a Buddhist worldview. Would, would you say you have a Buddhist worldview? And a lot of times people say, yeah, I guess generally that's where that fits into. You might have an atheistic worldview or an agnostic worldview. Who can really know? But at least get them to kind of label uh, what it is that they believe. Ask this follow-up question. What doubts do you have? Where are the holes in your worldview? And if they're honest, and if they're thinking people, if they've really kind of 
tackled this, they'll be able to come up with some holes. They'll be able to come up with some areas that they, they struggle with. They say, here's my worldview, but it's not airtight. There's, there's a few things I, I, I really wrestle with over here. And, and maybe, you know, in asking that question, really listen to them. I think one of the problems Christians sometimes have is they, they ask a question, you know, Patty, how was your day? And then they tap their foot and they're like this. They're like, I got something to tell you. Did you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? You know, and we want to, we want to kind of like get out our spiritual plan of salvation or we want to get out our worldview or whatever else. Really asking the question, hey, tell me about your worldview. How do you see life? And then really listening for answer. That's the start of a friendship. That's the start of really caring for that person. But what you will find is this. If they're honest, and if they thought about it, they have holes. They have doubts about their worldview. And maybe the follow-up question will be something like this. Is it that your worldview doesn't have answers for those holes? Or is it that you're not satisfied with the kind of prescribed answer that many in your worldview kind of class would, would give as, as the answers? I start off by saying Christians are global, and so is everyone else because of this. The whole notion of doubt is common to the human experience. And I would say, not only is it common to the human experience, it's actually good for the human experience. We're not going to dive into all the blessings of doubt today, but we're going we're to tackle just a couple of them. Uh, if you're new to the faith or not a Christian, I'm going to teach you some Christianese this morning. You might walk into a church and someone says something and someone in the conversation says, wow, brother, that's really stepping out in faith. Now, if you're new to the program, you're like, what just happened? What does that even mean? Now, I don't have all the nuances to it, but when someone is stepping out in faith, it's the idea of they, they can't see everything, but they're trusting God with something, okay? Now, if I say the word stepping out in faith this morning, some of you here might, might feel uh, joy. When you hear stepping out in faith, you, you, you immediately feel this rush of joy because right now, God is doing tremendous, tre- tremendous things in your life. You see things really clearly, and God's really just leading you out into deeper waters more and more, and he's proving himself faithful, and you just find yourself following him joyfully. Do you know that every Sunday, there's at least someone in that camp? I mean, the things that God's doing... They're, they're just like, I get all this, Dave, because God, God's telling me that every moment of every day. But in this church family, some in this service, some in the next service, there will also be the experience of guilt. Guilt, when you hear the word stepping out of joy, might be this. I can't seem to trust God right now. Or maybe I don't act on what I say is true. And so I feel guilty when I think about this idea of stepping out in faith. Maybe it's frustration. Maybe it's not for a lack of desire, but like we just sang, God, I keep singing skyward. It just never rains. Maybe you're in this desert season right now. So what about those who doubt? What about those who just have, have a faith that's, that's wavering right now? What does God feel about our doubts, our fears, our questions, our unbelief? Maybe more importantly, what does he want us to do with them? And where can we talk openly? Is the church a place where we can bring our questions and our struggles and our doubts and our wavering 
faith. This morning, I want to create room for doubt. And I want to create room for doubt because as I read the scriptures, I marvel at how unafraid God is to discuss doubt and and receive questions, so much more than his church seems to be. The church seems to be uptight about it. God seems to welcome it. So this morning, I want to mimic God in this. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is a little book right smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And we are going to cover an entire book in the next few minutes. So hang on to your horses. Here's what's amazing about Ecclesiastes. Many of you in this room probably have read through Ecclesiastes, or you know somewhat of the background about Ecclesiastes. And right here, smack dab in the middle of the Bible, are some ideas and thoughts that from a human perspective, you would have thought, would have gotten it kicked out of the Bible. And yet here it is in the middle of our Bible. It's filled with questions. It's filled with actually despair and doubt and unbelief. And isn't it just like God to put it smack dab in the middle of our scriptures and not disqualify it, but welcome it in? The book is about searching. It, it chronicles a quest And if you turn to Ecclesiastes 1, we'll pick it up in verse 13. It says this. The author says, I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. J.I. Packer calls Ecclesiastes the one book in the Bible expressly designed to turn us into realists. Here's the teacher as he identifies himself in the start of the book. And he's devoted himself to understanding and to explore wisdom, uh, everything being done under heaven. As we get into this conversation about doubt, there are a couple of extremes to avoid. One extreme to avoid is this, no doubt. To not acknowledge the unwelcome but universal presence of doubt leads to something that we call hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, in short, is being two-faced. It's exactly what Ben was talking about, putting on the happy, smiley face, where really what's behind the mask is something completely different. And to not acknowledge our doubt, and some of some of you in this room were, were trained up in a church that wasn't comfortable with questions. It wasn't comfortable with, with, uh, with wavering faith, right? And so maybe we learned at an early age to put on that mask and not even acknowledge. Do you ever struggle? No, I don't struggle at all. Always. It's always airtight. And what happens is we, 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 we get so used to, to that camp. Here's the other one. The other one is all doubt. All doubt is camping out in doubt and wallowing in it all the time. And when you just wallow in doubt all the time, it's equally damaging to the spiritual life, and it's not God's will for us, as we're going to very, very plainly see. Right now, I think the culture loves to wallow in doubt and in skepticism. Somehow you're a little bit above other people if you question things. And so I think that that all-doubt camp is the one that seems to be kind of ruling the day. 
You don't get far as a pilgrim in any kind of a, of a understanding or truth quest or faith quest before asking some, some really, really big questions. And these, the answers to these questions begin to shape your worldview. If you don't know what I mean by worldview, you'll, you'll kind of see it here. Usually they fit into one of these four kinds of categories. Origin, where did I come from? Do I matter? Questions of meaning, why am I here? What is my purpose for being here? Morality, do my actions matter? And finally, destiny, where am I going? Now, I've, I've dialogued, I haven't been to a lot of countries, but I've been to a few different places on the globe. I've dialogued about these four specific questions with people from a few different points in the globe. Guess what? They're universal as far as I can tell. There, there's, not a, there's not an adult on the planet that hasn't thought through some of these to some level. Now, the, the, this kind of a quest is a hotbed for doubt and confusion, right? These are, these are the really, really big questions. They're big questions because they don't seem to be easy answers, and there's not universal agreement on what the answer is to these. These questions tend to come up at different times and in varying degrees of urgency. As I look around and I engage people in conversation, here's what I find. I find much of the time people have precious little time to talk about these kind of questions. These are kind of those big eternal questions that are out there, and, and they don't have a lot of time for them. But there's a few windows of our lives where these become burning, pressing questions. I drove by, I, I, I both rode and drove by a, a funeral uh, home and a graveyard yesterday. And I've been a part of services at both of these places. And so memories flash through, and so family members pass through, and conversations pass through my mind. And in a funeral, don't these questions kind of loom a little bit larger than in other seasons of, of, of life? Of course they do, because we start to ponder our own death. We start to wonder, well, what's happened to the person in the box? And so all of a sudden, these questions take on new importance Sometimes the conclusions that other people come to have a huge impact on us. I don't know if you like the mind of Gary Larson, but uh, he wrote the Far Side cartoon. And the caption to this one says this. You ever get that urge, Frank? It begins with looking down from 50 stories up, thinking about the meaninglessness of life, listening to dark voices deep inside you, and you think, should I? Should I? Should I push someone off? So, so what, what other people are wrestling through with their worldview, sometimes, guess what? It collides with you. It impacts you. The news, frankly, is filled with this reality. Look at, look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. <laughs> uh, that, that really sets the tone for the whole book, if you're new to Ecclesiastes, I would challenge you. It's a short read. Go, go read it this afternoon sometime. But that's what he starts off. He goes on uh, down in verses 13 to 14 um, to, to, to really lay out more of it. God has dealt a tragic existence. Everything is meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. What is wrong cannot be righted. What is missing cannot be recovered. And as you read through Ecclesiastes, he comes to some basic conclusions. Life 
and everything we experience in it is futile and vain. It's a real cheery read. Number two, there is a problem with fulfillment. Here it is. Ready? It can't be found. Don't live to avoid frustrations. They are unavoidable. This is a guy who had clearly a lot of resources. People think King Solomon probably wrote this. He had at his disposal everything you could imagine to go after. And he chronicles that in the book. And yet these are the conclusions that he comes to. Uh, Flip over to chapter 12. It's the very end of the book. And the last two verses... I won't read them, but they sum up this way. Fear God and follow his commandments and live with the future in mind. This applies to everyone. That's, that's kind of the conclusion that he comes to. Now, we're not exactly sure how his life ended for absolute sure. But if you're taking notes, just jot down 1 Kings 11. In 1 Kings 11, you can read about the end of King Solomon's life. And what we know about King Solomon is this. He lived in a time of personal opulence and affluence, much like the Silicon Valley. Lots of things at his disposal. And yet you could say that that he died of heart problems. In 1 Kings 11, we see that he had given his heart to foreign wives. He had given his heart to foreign gods. And at the end of his life, his heart was away from God. King Solomon, in fact, seemed to um, almost embody this teaching of Jesus from Matthew 16, where Jesus says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Ecclesiastes is an interesting read. It's part of what scholars call the wisdom literature. And praise God it's in the Bible. Because you've asked some of those same questions. And isn't this God's green light to say, these are okay to ask? We just sang a line in a song that I absolutely love. That, that Something to the effect of, I'm fearful to ask these questions, but you know they are there. And sometimes I think we're, we're afraid to bring them up. And God wants us to bring them up. The answer to these big questions that we looked at really impact how you tackle problems, how you spend your resources, how you pursue truth, how you decide what's valuable, and it really forms your worldview. If you try to answer this question, what is, what is life like? What's a, what's a good metaphor for life? And in literature, there's all kinds of different things. Uh, life is a carousel. Life is a dance. It's a deck of cards. The great theologian Forrest Gump, right? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Now, that all sounds nice and sweet, but a Jewish writer once described life as a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. Some of you are like, box of chocolates, forget it. I get that Jewish guy more than any of those other ones so far. American poet Carl Sandburg compared life to an onion. You peel it off one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. British playwright George Bernard Shaw said that life was a series of inspired follies, right? All of a sudden, we're starting to get a broader scope of what life is. 
I suppose when some people hear Jesus offer that he's come to give them life more abundant, they think, no thanks, I've got plenty already. Don't need any more of that life stuff. Your view of life will shape how you live it. And let me just say this. The starting point of a relationship with God is that faith is involved. Let me show you a couple of scriptures. Mark 16, 16 16 shows that faith, the way of faith, is necessary for our salvation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. These are in your notes, so don't write them down. But in one of your boxes, um, I just jotted down a few verses about what a, what a life of faith is like. We're to live by faith, Romans. We're to stand firm in the faith, Corinthians. We're to continue in the faith, Acts. We're to be strong in the faith, Romans. We're to abound in it, 2 Corinthians. We're to keep it, 1 Timothy. We're to have assurance of our faith, 2 Timothy. All through the Scriptures, we're called again and again and again to walk the way of faith, to live the life of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Here's a chronic problem in America. I talk to a lot of people that as you get into the conversation, they would say this, I believe in God. I believe in God. That's not my problem. But according to James 2.19, believing in God only qualifies you to be a demon. Demons believe in God, James makes a point of saying. Lucifer believed in God. So believing in God is not the problem. Take off the word in, right? And then it changes everything. Do you believe God? Right? So you can believe in God your whole life, but never believe God. What does believe God mean? It means trust. Right? It means, hey, come over here, and when you believe someone, you say, I believe them enough that I'm going to show it by my actions. So we have this kind of brand of Christianity in the West that talks a lot about believing in God, but clearly not believing God. Because we don't walk by his commands. We don't find them joyful. We don't trust his promises. We are living for our best life now. And we're not looking forward to the things he pointed us to, to, to look forward to. Philip Yancey has struck a chord with a lot of different people uh, with some of his writings. And he's tried to explore uh, this topic of doubt and hurt and some different things. He says this, As for faith, it will always mean believing in what cannot be proven, committing to that which we can never be sure. A person who lives in faith must proceed on incomplete evidence, trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Do you know what the Hebrews Hall of Faith? Do you know that chapter? That, that's a chapter that talks all about people who've laid down their lives in some great sacrifices. And what they were doing was embodying that. They were trusting in advance 
what could only possibly make sense once they get to the other side of the tunnel and look back on it. And they're an example of faith for us as brothers and sisters. Flip over to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. The late Rich Mullins has a song called Hard to Get. It's just a great lyric that talks about the reality of some of the things that we realize in a life of faith. In chapter 3, verse 10, the writer says this, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I'd like you to do something for me right now, if you would. Take out your handout, and I just want you to draw wind for me. So go ahead and pull out a pen or a pencil and draw wind. I'd like you to to do that right now, and tell me how it goes. As you go start to draw wind, what happens? Tell me. Right, so, so your brain starts going, well, we can... We can do the little cartoon squiggly lines, right? But that's not really wind. We could, we could show the effects of the wind. But, but all of a sudden, you hit a little bit of a roadblock because you go, well, there's a mystery to this. So it is with God. There, there's, there's a mystery to God that we, that we can't get our heads around. There's a mystery to drawing wind. It doesn't mean that wind doesn't exist. It means that there's a mystery to it. Sometimes it's in the darkness of despair that we see things most clearly. Have you noticed in the Christian life that God doesn't just give us all the evidence, all the truth, and lay it out there, and then kind of stand back like this and wait for a decision? Have you noticed that? He seems to parcel out truth to us. He seems to reveal bits of truth to us in His wisdom, which means in His timing. And I know you, you're Silicon Valley control freaks. This frustrates you. This ticks you off. You think you should get to be in control of the timing and the pace of all of that. But it is God's nature to parcel out. Emily Dickinson talked about dazzling gradually. And that's what God seems to do. She stole that from the Bible, by the way. Listen to Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. You think about why, and we're not going to delve too far into this. You can leave that for community groups. But you wonder why that is. Here's what I see out of that. I see relationship forming out of the back and forth that goes on with the search. There's all kinds of relationship that gets formed as, as there's a drawing close and a real closeness that we sense in our walk with God sometimes, and then that, that, God, where did you just go? I mean, don't you see my circumstances? I need you closer now than, than ever. And what does that do? That sends us on a quest. God, we've tasted what it's like to be close to you. We, we have to have that again. It leads us to more desperate prayer. I'm always in desperate need of prayer, but I don't always feel like that. I don't always sense that. In fact, much of the time I wrestle with thinking that I'm somehow going to solve my biggest problems. So there's a lot of relationship that forms in that. At the end of Job, 
God has the perfect opportunity in all of the Bible to address a problem that has, that has plagued skeptics, seekers, and very, very faithful people alike. And it's the problem of pain and suffering. How can all this junk go on? God has the perfect opportunity to lay it out at the end of Job. Have you read the book of Job? It's the longest recorded speech of God in the whole Bible. And you know what he does? He doesn't do what all of us in here feel like we would love for him to do. Give us the answer, God, to that problem of pain and suffering. It's evidently not in his plan to have laid that out because that was the perfect spot to do it. This nature of God the Father is carried on in the Son. Read the Gospels and you'll see that Jesus told stories when people wanted specifics. Jesus seemed to live his story almost as much, if not more, than than talking about it. He never seemed to give interviewers straight answers. In fact, more often than not, he asked his own questions back to people who were asking him questions and sometimes even seemed to almost put words in their mouth. Sometimes the gospel writers let us know that that was revealing what was in the heart of that person, but sometimes not. In fact, as I read the Gospels, sometimes I think, um, Jesus, it seems like you're making it harder for people to believe than easier. Perhaps the hardest thing to figure out about God is the mystery of his questionable choice of heroes in the Bible. One of the points about defending the Bible's authenticity is this. If you really read the Bible, you would think, you know what? Surely a human editor would have cut these parts out. There's no way someone trying to make God look good would leave some of the things in the Bible that are in the Bible. Let me give you just a couple of quick examples. Jacob. Jacob's one of the good guys. Jacob is a lying, conniving weasel. And it's laid out in the scriptures. Don't you read Jacob's story and go, how on earth can God bless this? Here's what's interesting. Rebecca, his mom, she's right in on the story with them. Go look up Jacob and and Rebecca. Read their story. How about Gideon? If there was a human director, a human editor to the Bible, Gideon's story has a very clear ending point. The music swells. There's a crescendo. Cut! Here's where it is. Gideon's this uh, pretty timid little guy. God comes in, does some things. He responds in faith. And the story would have ended right after the victory and his refusal to be their king. He has this great victory that people say, be your king. And he says, no, you have one king. Cut! The Bible doesn't stop there. What happens with Gideon? Anyone know? Yeah, it's like a downhill spiral from there. You would stop the story at at what he said with the right thing. Instead, right after this huge victory and saying the right things, which is the Lord will rule over you, here's what he does. He turns right around and does the wrong thing. He makes an idol which all of Israel played the harlot to. That's the language of the scriptures. (laughs) Wouldn't you edit that out if you're trying to make God look good? You, You know, these are the good guys. Uh, That's Judges 8, by the way, if you want to go look it up. 
Here's a quick blitz. The nakedness of Noah, the lust of Samson, the impatience of Moses, the compromise of Saul, the self-righteousness of Job, the denial of Peter, the defection of John Mark, arguments between Peter and Paul, two of the biggest characters in the New Testament, and the poster boy of them all, doubting Thomas. Right? These are the ones God chooses to use to accomplish his will. And God's glory is seen in spite of, or perhaps, catch this, because of their glaring faults. And in their stories, what we see is bits of our own story in it. So if you doubt, you're in good biblical company. Maybe you've thought about this. Is doubt friend or foe? What are we supposed to think about it? I want to propose to you, I decided to leave the... um, visual or nasal aid um, off today, but, but doubt is a little bit like manure, okay? Doubt is like manure in this way. It can be a toxin or it can be nourishment. It can be toxic uh, because it has the potential to kill spiritual life, eventually seeping every vestige of life and destroying the purpose. If you read Ecclesiastes, what you see is a picture of a man with all this opulence and wealth researching what's true, and he views it as life from under the sun. And it's an unpacking of despair. Switchfoot has a song in which they have this line, suspicion is the new religion. And all doubt equals despair, hopelessness. And frankly, it's a bit of a cop-out. You cannot build a marriage or a company, or a country, or a life simply on what it's not. I'm against this. I don't believe in that. That's got holes in it. You have to, at some point, create a foundation on what it is. Do you see how all suspicion is a bit of a cop-out? You're not providing any real answers moving forward. Secondly, doubt can be a little bit like nourishment. It has the ability to grow our faith, to deepen our faith, to stretch our understanding with God. What I love about the story of Job is this. Here's a guy who suffered more than anyone in this room. And in Job, we see a passionate relationship with God. There's no cold, intellectual religion going on with Job. It doesn't all make sense with him. He questions and he pulls and he begs for God and he stays silent and then he speaks out. And what we see formed in all of that is relationship and trust. I want to leave you with some really practical ideas. What do I do if I doubt? What am I supposed to do? We're talking about emotions that can create forest fires, that can really, really burn. And certainly doubt is one of those. Left unchallenged or neglected, it can turn into a real problem. Number one is this. Don't be lazy or pretend that your doubts don't exist. At the camp out, there was a trough, eight some feet long, and we had a pretty cool campfire going in that trough, and it had our attention. And we're sitting around one night watching this campfire, enjoying ourselves. And, um, and at some point, uh, something caught my eye over this way. And over this way, I look, and I go, huh, someone else is having a campfire, too. That's weird, because there's really only one spot to have a campfire 
in this uber dry open field place that we're camping. Now this all happened in a fraction of a microsecond. Um, so I look over and I realize what's on fire is a camp stove. And what's near the camp stove are big giant propane tanks. Um, so being the astute person that I was, uh, I jump up and said, fire. <laughs> and so we went, we went walking over there. Now, I won't name names, but Phil and Mindy Namek were on the camping trip. And comparing that to doubt, they, we, we could have just been lazy about that, right? Huh, another fire. Well, we've got a better fire here. Let's, let's see what goes on with that. I don't want to get up. This camping chair is pretty comfy, right? And just let it burn and see what would have happened. We would have had some killer stories, right? We could have been ignoring it and just pretending it doesn't exist. Maybe the Nemics were completely embarrassed that they, uh, that they left their towel hanging over a camp stove, a very common thing that probably all of us did on the, on the trip. But maybe they were embarrassed about it, so they jump in front of it and pretend it's not a problem. Well, pretty soon, Mindy's hair would have been on fire, and it would have gotten really out of control. Sometimes people with doubt do the same thing. I'm wrestling with this uninvited guest of doubt. I don't know how to deal with it. No one here seems to have any doubts. I can look. No one's got doubts. It must just be me. So I'll stand here and pretend it doesn't exist. Meanwhile, you're burning. Maybe laziness is a part of it. I genuinely think many people who say, I just can't trust the Bible, it's not because they've devoted themselves to understanding like the author of Ecclesiastes. Frankly, they're just a little lazy. It's a little hard to go on a search. There's not just a big thing written in the sky. So who can trust it? And it's just laziness. Here's number two. Number two is don't tickle your doubts with toys. Um, some people, the way that they go after their doubts is they say, you know what, I really wonder about Jesus. And so I read an article right around Easter time uh, from Newsweek magazine. And so they, they think in their mind, Peyton, you don't have to be embarrassed. Proudly bring that thing forward. Yes. And so what they're doing is they're, they're tickling their doubts with some author from Newsweek magazine. Give it up for our stunt driver, Peyton. Thanks, buddy. And so they say, have you researched the real Jesus? Yeah, I saw a special, a half-hour special on the History Channel. I read an article around Easter time from Time Magazine. And the guy was credible, I think. So yeah, I've done some real research. You know what you're doing? Here it is right here. You, you, don't, you don't want this in a real fire. All you're doing is you're going after your doubts and you're just kind of tickling them with toys. And here's the problem with that. Um, Steve Jobs, in an interview in 1994, said something that today will seem like completely obvious, but in 1994 it wasn't. He was being interviewed and he said this, 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 this web thing that's going on is going to completely change the face of commerce and business. Because you see on the web, there's coming a day when any company can seem as big as the largest company in the world on the web, and no one can tell the difference. Is that true today? Duh. But in an era where it was all brick and mortar, physical st stores that you walked in, tiny mom and pop with terrible 
uh, customer service and zero knowledge looked very different than your favorite store that, that looked like they knew what was going on. On the internet, that's not true. You know what? The same is true for truth. Purveyors of answers to, the, to life's big questions, they all can look identical on the web. And guess who's getting duped? You and me and the rest of the world. We all make fun of this, but I think we also are all susceptible to this. Well, I read it on the internet. Anyone who says that, you go, oh, yeah, right. But I did see this article, right? What happens is a truth claim here and a truth claim here evidently are totally equal because they're both written, and who knows their credentials? So what happens is uh, people, people begin uh, to, to pursue truth that way. Listen to James 3.5. It talks about the tongue. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. Relate that to people boasting on the Internet about truth claims, about Jesus, about the Bible, about the gospel, about the nature of sin, about the nature of salvation, about the nature of atonement. Tiny little member setting a huge forest fire of doubt. The tongue is a fire, it goes on to say, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Here's number three. Sometimes people are duped into trusting the experts without testing them. Many dress the part, but won't help you out of imminent danger that you're in. So now maybe we're not talking so much maybe just about those who are just out there. We don't have any clue at all about them. But now we're kind of bringing it closer to home. They're trusting experts without testing them. I want to show you a picture of some hardworking firemen. So this happened on Friday. Um, we see three very hardworking firemen. They're attentive. They've dressed the part. If you watched them long enough, you would have seen. They had all the dials and, and buttons going on. They were very, uh, they were watching the lights. And then something happened. Uh, they began to ham it up for the camera. Because dad was taking pictures, and so they got a little distracted by it. And then something even worse happened. They completely forgot that they were firemen, and this cute blonde was doing some cool things with coins that spun around, and they sat there mesmerized by something that had nothing to do with fire. There are a lot of people who dress the part, who have the title fireman, that you do not want on your team when it comes to your doubts. You do not want them coming in to rescue you out of some spiritual crisis that you're in. Here's the huge danger some people are in. They think in their minds, you know what? I've already tried the experts. I've tried Christianity. I've tried the Bible. I've tried Jesus. Never mind that you tickled it. Never mind that the experts you went to were kids dressed in some costume clothing. Don't trust the experts without testing them. The Bible says over and over, in fact, we're going to get into this in 2 Peter. We're coming up on 2 Peter in two weeks, folks. So you can prep ahead by, by reading ahead. You watch people's lifestyle. Good fruit comes from good trees. I have no clue how some of the people that write the books I read and all of that. So, so you take it with a grain of salt, so to speak. You look at someone's lifestyle over the course of an entire life, not a short bit. 
Finally, don't relax and just give in to it. James 1, 2 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Catch this, even spiritual ones. Some of you are in a spiritual trial of doubt right now. Consider it joy. Listen to what it says. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Here are a couple of things to do. Number one is to engage. Press on. Strive. Ask the Father for help. Hear this. God loves questions. God loves questions. Didn't Jesus say ask, seek, knock? Tense of the verb says keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Come after me. I love it when you engage with questions. 1 John 2 says test the spirits. Christian, that means this. Don't be gullible. Investigate. Test Think, reason. God gave you a mind. Use it. Christians ought to be the most thinking people on the planet. A friend of mine has a website. Write this down. Noblindfaith.com. He's spoken here before. My friend Neil Mauman. And Neil, I was just poking around his website a little bit this week. I've referred many people to it. Um, but he was a friend of mine in college. In fact, he was one of the leaders in college ministry. And he gave this talk one time. And it really challenged me to say, wow, I've taken so much stuff just at face value without really investigating it. He challenges people to engage so their faith would grow stronger. One of the things you can do, I prayed it this morning, was to, is to pray the doubter's prayer. Are you ready for it? It's in Mark 9.24. You can just jot that down. Here it is. Immediately the boy's father cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. That's a mix of all of us. We do believe. I think everyone here is, is striving after God. You're here because you, you want to have faith. Help my unbelief, though. That's acknowledging the presence of doubt. There's a sermon series I'd refer you from our website uh, called Grow to Go. It's an apologetic series. I think we took about eight weeks to just look at some of the defenses of the faith. Not to build up our head, not to run around and attack people and beat them, but to go and share the love of Jesus and grow in our own confidence in our faith as to what we believe. Go back and listen to that. Number two, channel doubt in ways that make it a nourishment. Engage in a search like the Bereans from Acts 17 did. It says that they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. We all know that verse, but we don't know the very next verse. Ready? Here it is. Many of them, therefore, believed. How did they come to belief? Not because someone just told them it was true, but someone told them it was true, and then they were driven to say, is that really true? Many of them, therefore, believed. Why? Because they went on the search themselves. That's the biggest part of my own faith story, is when God started feeding me firsthand from the Scriptures. Number three, Start from a humble position as the creature and not the creator. As you go out on your search, there's such a pride movement. It's the sin of Satan, rebellion and pride. And if you enter into some of these big origin questions of life where you think you're the center, you, you, you will probably come to some skewed results. If you have any sense that God is there, pray and say, God, would you, would you humble me? Your ways, Isaiah says, are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Finally, join with others in God's family. Listen to Jude 20. But you, dear friends, listen, 
must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray, catch this, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. Listen for the doubters here. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Do you hear how we're to join together and there's going to be weaker members and stronger members in any given group? Friends, in two weeks, we're having our annual fall on-ramp for community groups. That's going to be an opportunity where some of you who have never been, never taken a step of trust of coming and being broken down into a smaller group of people and meeting weekly and committing your lives together as Christians, doing life together, that's going to be your opportunity to join. Those aren't done uh, just to be cute. Those are done out of necessity so that we can build each other up, so that those whose faith is wavering can be shown mercy but also be led to the truth. I want to invite the band to come on up. They're going to lead us now in some songs um, of a different nature, which Ben will share with you about. As they do, I want you to think about what Jesus told us, which is to have childlike faith. You know what you can learn from children? A lot. My four-year-old daughter at the time, named Briley, brought up a concern to me when we were praying at night one time. And here's what she asked. She said, Daddy... Who prays for Jesus? And that undid me. Because I thought, wow, we always want to come to Jesus looking to get, looking to ask questions, looking for answers, looking for stuff. And here's the heart of a child that just cared for Jesus. Don't you love that? When you listen to the prayers of children, you hear them telling God what they really think. They're simple, they're direct, they're unpolitically correct, and they're honest. When you listen to kids pray, they don't let their, va- their vocabulary or lack of it get in the ways of their prayers. They just talk. They're also not afraid to cry out or even express doubt. My kids often pray as, as younger kids, I hope that, I hope that, I hope that. And there's this weird theologian guy in my head that's like, well, that's not good theology. I'm like, let them pray. That's a great thing to pray. Finally, to children, a call for help is a proud expression of their dependency on those who love them. Not something to be hidden, not something to be ashamed of. God, would you grow us to be more childlike in our faith? Father, I pray that you would grow us up in our knowledge and our understanding the things that you're doing in our lives. But I pray, God, also that we would trust you with your timing and with your wisdom. I thank you for the amazing stories of faith that have gone on this week. I thank you, God, for the questions and the doubt and the struggle that's gone on. I pray that this next week, God, we would press into that, that we'd build each other up, that you'd continue to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.